Hi folks, it's Teffer here. A lot of you have commented on our wonderful theme music, Jenny's Groove, which is composed and performed by Great Bear. As you know, during this period, musicians, performers, and other gig workers have been hit especially hard. The folks behind Great Bear, Andrew and Noah Van Orstrand, in addition to being childhood friends of mine and really great people, uh, have been working the contra dance circuit since they were children, and their career is really based on live performances and dance events, all of which have been canceled. We're asking you now, if you have the means, if you have the stability to do so, to please consider buying one of their albums to support them. I'm linking a few of their music projects in the show notes rather than just Great Bear. A couple of my favorite albums are That We Could Find a Way to Be, which is Andrew's debut solo album, and All the Good Summers, which is a project uh, jointly put out by Andrew and Noah. They're great music, uh, wonderful lyrics, really beautiful harmonies, and you'd be supporting some really good people. So please uh, take a look at their band camps, give a listen to a couple of their songs, and consider supporting them financially during this time. They donated their music to us for free, and we feel like this is really the least we can do to get back to them. Thanks. I'm Tefra Jemian. I'm Caddy Diop. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah. We are uh, recording remotely this week to be responsible about not spreading viruses. So, um, you know, some things might be a little less smooth than usual. Yeah. Yeah, things won't be as easy peasy because we won't be uh, looking at one another, which is something that um, we get very used to. Um, But we are continuing our sequel month. And uh, this week, Tefra and I read uh, Children of Virtue and Vengeance uh, by Tommy Adiemi. It's the second book in the legacy of Orisha. Um, So we uh, I think you and Bailey had recorded uh, the Children of Blood and Bone episode previously, right? Yeah, about a year ago. Uh-huh. And then this book finally came out like six months later than expected this past December. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just read a little summary that's uh, up on the internet or on the in the book cover just uh, for our sake and so that we don't spoil it because this book came out. Uh, three months ago. Yes. So after battling the impossible, uh, Zeli and Amari have finally succeeded in bringing magic back to the land of Orisha. Uh, but the ritual was more powerful than they've imagined, reigniting the powers of not only the Magi, but the nobles with magic ancestry too. Um, so now Zeli's job is to struggle to unite the Magi uh, in an Orisha where the enemy is just as powerful as they are. Uh, but when the monarchy and military unite to keep control of Orisha, Zeli must fight to secure Amari's right to the throne and protect the new Magi from the monarchy's wrath. With civil war looming on the horizon, Zeli finds herself at a breaking point. She must discover a way to bring the kingdom together or watch as Orisha tears itself apart. Bum, bum, bum. Um, Jeffrey, how do you like this book? So, I mean, part of this sequels month was my devious plot to be able to read all the books I want to read uh, this month. I was really excited to read this book um, because I really enjoyed Children of Blood and Bone. Um, It's dense. Children of Virtue and Vengeance, there is a lot going on. And for the first, like, quarter of the book or so, I felt 
uh, like it was very hard to like the chaos of war mm-hmm. was just really well depicted and it kind of draws you into that feeling of uncertainty. I thought it was really nuanced and interesting with its its treatment of power and what power does to people and what people do to power. It's a lot, I would say, a lot more action-packed than Children of Blood and Bone, which often happens with sequels because you have the characters established and, and then you can have fun with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's, it ends on a massive cliffhanger. Uh, yes, it does. <laughs> and uh, there are so many twists and turns. What I had heard a lot is that it's very dark and difficult. And I would say it it is, but it didn't bog me down, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I was sort of expecting it to be a, a little harder to read, and I found that it did a good job. I mean, Ariyami did a good job of, like, as we say a lot, writing into hope and kind of keeping momentum going uh, in a way that, that kept things in stride. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I thought this book... Um... I I, uh, I was reading it and I was like, this is such an African book, uh, <laughs> um, in the sense that um, the 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 storytelling in itself is really interesting, and I really love. Um, this was my first time reading all the Children of uh, Blood and Bone, and it was so fun to build this universe. Like it's a very richly drawn universe, very earthy. Um, just yeah very evocative writing um and i quite liked it i agree with the fact that this is a dense book there's a lot of information there's a lot happening and i mean i'm grateful for the fact that i'm not reading this while i'm in midterm uh (laughs) because it's a lot of things to remember right it's a lot of it's a lot of little pieces of a universe to keep track of um but you know what we did it for harry potter we did it for sweet valley high we're gonna we did it for hunger games we are gonna do it for this series as well um because i think there's good stuff here um the representation is epic Mm -hmm. it's epic there's something really incredible about like reading descriptions of characters who look like members of of my family and and hearing about this you know african magic and all that it's really lovely it's it's it i was excited uh throughout my reading of this book which might you know have tinted the way that i look at it but i like it it was great yeah i was really excited to hear like your perspective like we weren't originally doing this book together and I'm glad we're doing this book together because I was mm-hmm. really excited to hear your perspective because of course like um I wouldn't pick up on elements of the storytelling <laughs> or the history because I don't know anything because I was educated in North America um and so it's it was exciting I kept being like oh I can't wait to like hear what Caddy like like yeah what Caddy has to say about this Okay. Um, yeah, I think, you know, like magic is very much a part of African culture, right? And especially in West, West Africa, like there are so many different, uh, you know, ethnicities of people that uh, still, you know, totally believe in the magic of nature. And the fact that this is rooted in nature really makes me happy because it's not rooted just in, like, I mean, I think that's the original 
way of talking about magic, whether we're talking about pagans or anywhere around the world, really, like what we're talking about is someone who communes with nature enormously. And I love that in this series, like in the, and the joy is that I read both books back to back. So Mm. that was really helpful to sort of see that like some people are rooted in, in fire, some people are rooted more in air and et cetera. And, and that's really what's intriguing is this understanding that, you know, there are very few who can master more. Um, You know, it's, it's very rare and, to understand that like I mean it's almost like looking at the astrology as a superpower you know what I mean like mm-hmm. some of us are fire signs some of us like we just entered airy season so I'm just gonna tout the importance of like fire <laughs> you know and 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 when we think of you know a good old Pisces we think about water mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah I, I really love how that's interwoven and it's also part of the you know, Tomi Adeyemi is, is, is Nigerian, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Nigerian or Ghanaian? Uh, Nigerian. And, um, you know, and Nigeria has nothing to do with my, uh, you know, the culture that I grew up in, which is Senegalese and Guinean. Um, so there is something really neat about seeing similarities between two cultures that have, you know, very little to do with one another. Um, through this this magic, uh, the importance of tribe also, mm. like taking care of one's own, being responsible for people, and um, you know when you think about like the 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 any African novel, like I mean I think if you read like Chimananda Adigoti, uh, oh what's her last name? Thank goodness I have a computer in front of me. Uh, Chimananda Ngozi Adichie, sorry, and um, when we read her, you know, it's, it's, while it's, it's romantic, there's also this, like, inherent struggle that is present within the characters, like, there's always this incredible darkness looming, Mm. and I think that for any, uh, anyone who's part of the diaspora, we know that, we carry that in our genes, right, it's something that, that lives inside of us, this heaviness, this well, it sucks to say it's oppression, but uh, and and collective trauma. But uh, to still see that represented and turned into fantasy is awesome, because we've been like I think Octavia Butler uh, created lots of sci-fi uh, with with black character, but with black characters, but we don't get a ton of fantasy where we exist. Um, you know, it, it wasn't super fun uh, as a young adult who was coming into my political views to read Harry Potter and to love the books, but to be like, oh my gosh, everyone is so white and so English and, and English the same way and, and in an assimilated way, you know, even even though you had like, uh, there's, there's two uh, Indian siblings in Harry Potter, like it's very far removed from anything that touches on folklore. Um, whereas this just like, it, I had fun. This was just really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I like what you brought up about the idea of collective and, and intergenerational trauma. Um, because I hadn't really thought of it specifically in that way, but there is a real, I mean, there's such a, such a, tied ancestry and not just to ancestry but to things that have happened in the past continuing in the future or mm. in the present rather and I mean I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything 
<laughs> because this is a new release. Um, but it is very much a book about how choices affect the flow of time and the flow of humanity. Yep. Um, and that is, you know, more profound than a magic school. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't I don't want to like pit them against each other because they're very different books. But um, it's a really, really serious and profound kind of magic kind of fantasy that goes very deep yes absolutely um i i completely agree and uh it's hard for us at, like there's it's gonna feel like we're gonna take some 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 big steps away from the book i guess in this conversation but that's just because it's easy to spoil this book and i don't want to do that because it's interesting and i'm also super excited for the book to come out one day soon i can't wait it's such oh, a cliffhanger. Yeah. Oh, my God. What's happening? What's <laughs> happening? <laughs> oh, boy. Those those of you who have read it, you know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You're like, mm-hmm, what is happening? Um, so I wanted to talk about um, making mistakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because as it's, it's mentioned in uh, in the, 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 the book's description, um Zili, you know, she 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 accidentally <laughs> releases magic to people um, who are trying to uh, kill her, um, shall we say, or get rid of people who are like her. Um, and I kept thinking about that while reading uh, while reading it, and I was like, oh, what are the big mistakes that we've made? You know, like that you just regret and you knock your head and you go like, oh, why? Why did I do this? Like it bit me in the butt so hard, etc. So, um, Taffer, did do you have any big old whoopsies that you've made? And oh, <laughs> you put me right on the spot there, huh? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I mean, naturally, yes. I wouldn't. I don't think I've yet made any whoopsies that change the the course of human history. Fair. Because I I have not yet been put in a chosen one position. I would say I would say yes. I have made some big whoopsies, but none I necessarily want to document on the internet at this point. Oh my god, that's for sure. <laughs> I can tell you in person. Totally reasonable. Yeah. Uh, How about I thought you? about. Yeah, of course. I've made some massive mistakes. Mainly, most of them have been dating related. If we're being very, very honest. Oh well, yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but otherwise I think that like, I like what you said about like never being put in a chosen one position. I think that, uh, I'm currently finishing an undergrad that I started four years ago. And as I look at, uh, pursuing into my graduate studies, I'm like, oh, there is this notion of like, I must do this. I must be the chosen one. So I'm kind of creating that, trying to create that momentum for myself. Um, so I haven't made any big blunders yet. Um, but, uh, oh, maybe not talking to people enough. Mm. That would be my biggest whoopsie. Um, last summer I, uh, I, I burnt out. I think it's important for people to hear these things because they happen and they're not our fault. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, completely burnt out and harmed my, uh, my, my nervous system and all that stuff. And um, didn't talk enough about it to people around me. So I had a bunch of people who ended up being like, 
never known you as someone who's super duper flaky. And I was like, oh yeah, so just so you know, I was going through this, 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 this. And people were like, why didn't you tell us? Like we would have loved to like help like ease the burden, you know, whether it's in volunteer opportunities or work or things like that. Like it was just much easier to like in retrospect, it would have been much easier just to bring things up and be open and honest and, mm-hmm. you know, share the burden, let people in. Yeah. Okay, you're encouraging me to share now. <laughs> mm, <laughs> I feel more that's encouraged. Exciting. And also giving me a, a little bit more perspective on how specific and unspecific you can be about stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say looking back, the, the biggest mistake I've probably made is, is uh, just not sticking behind things I want to do or things I want to try and giving up very, very easily. Um, mm-hmm. Which is, I feel like this is something Bailey and I talked on an episode recently, but but kind of skating through school in a lot of ways gave me this great fear of failing. And so throughout my life, like whenever there's something that's been difficult, if I've faced resistance in doing something I want to do, I've been like, oh, well, that must not be the right thing for me to do then if there's resistance here. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to uh, stick things through and see things through and like let wanting something be enough to make me do it yeah um, has been a big 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 learning curve because uh, it's a mistake I've just like repeatedly made throughout my life mm. I relate to that <laughs> but then- I think that also has to do with the way that we're socialized so um and um, and and it's not for once. It's not a question of gender. Mm. <laughs> I think it's generational. I think that uh, those of us who have parents who are boomers. I know I have one of my parents is a boomer, mm-hmm. and um, you know this idea of like everything must be fine, everything must look perfect and put together. Uh, that that had a lasting impact on me. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so, I like, we don't want to be burdened, we don't want to bother anyone, we don't want to this, so, yeah. But mistakes really run through the marrow of this book, and I feel like that's something we do not see that often in fantasy. A yeah. lot of the time in fantasy, the, the author kind of saves the character from consequences of their mistakes, so mistakes are something yeah. you make while you're training, and then you train hard enough to not make big life-altering mistakes or you know history-altering mistakes um and Tomi Adeyemi does not protect her characters from that and that I think is something that's just singular about this novel I can't think of another novel where I've seen that where there's somebody who's the good guy or I mean really honestly in this book it's really hard to tell who's the good guy there are a few definite bad guys but like to see the people who who you're rooting for make these great big blunders. Yes, Um, absolutely. And you do see, I think, every major character at least once. And that's very satisfying, right? Like, I think we we often talk about this, like, what we like about characters is their humanity. And I can't stand characters who are perfect because it keeps, like, it puts the pressure on, Mm -hmm. I find. So... Yeah, I thought it was nice to have characters who messed up and who were imperfect and who were, oh, don't spoil it, Caddy, um, <laughs> who are some who think big picture yeah, and some who think very small picture. Yeah. 
Is that a good way of putting it without yes. spoiling too much? And I would say you really do see strengths and weaknesses of both sides. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is really special about the magic system is that there's no ultimate knowledge holder. Yeah. It's not like Lord of the Rings where like you can ask Gandalf, is this a good or a bad idea? And Gandalf is like, this is a good idea or this is a bad idea. Um, even the elders don't necessarily know everything because in a lot of ways this is a culture whose past and knowledge has been stolen from them. And so there's a lot of kind of, I don't know, let's try this. And, and more than anything, places hold knowledge rather than people. Oh, yes. Which gets back to that being rooted in the elements and, and rooted in the earth and the natural world, which is really special. Yeah. Have you ever had those experiences in like visiting some places and just kind of going like there is something very magical happening here? Um, you know, I know that happened to me. Uh, I was very fortunate and was able to go to Ireland when I was a young adult. And I w uh, we went to uh, the west coast of Ireland and to see the cliffs of Mohair. Mm. And it was one of those very particular moments where I felt so small in the universe but it also felt so familiar to me and I was like there is nothing Irish about me uh, other than the fact that I very much appreciate you know the culture and the music and the food and, and the people and the literature but I just I felt this sense of profound like I know this place I've been here before kind of thing and that was really interesting it, yeah it's for me it's an experience I've had multiple times I I find a lot of my whatever spirituality connection to a greater whole uh, through nature. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's partly growing up uh, in the country and, and really spending a lot of time outside exploring. Um, mm -hmm. But there's two things that come to mind. One is the first time uh, being near the ocean. Now, I'm sure I've mm -hmm. been to the ocean before, but when I was almost nine we moved to Boston and okay. and started going to the ocean a lot because we were in Boston and uh, um, there's a place called Halibut Point State Park which okay. is not a sandy beach there are beautiful sandy beaches of course around Cape Cod and everything uh, but Halibut Point is a, a rocky beach with a bunch of granite boulders and uh, you have to walk through a winding path with a bunch of bayberry bushes to get down there. And because it's a rocky beach, um, for one thing, the water is much deeper. You don't have the gradual going into the water. So it's mm -hmm. a lot rougher. And you really, you really get a sense of the power of the ocean. And that was just, there was, there was like a little cave you could get to. And like, that was my favorite place. It still is one of my favorite places in the world. Um, because because of just this deep, wild connection to, I guess, the wildness of nature and the power of nature. Yeah, um, and it's just, I mean, it's it's a it's a beautiful and profound place. Um, that sounds beautiful. That sounds amazing. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I'm <laughs> in springtime. I always miss Boston so much because I love New England in the spring. And I haven't been back in a few years, and it's been biting me <laughs> really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing I can imagine. that's really interesting that, that kind of sparked when you said this is that actually for the last couple of years, I've had this insatiable pull to go back to my hometown. 
mm-hmm. which is in rural Ontario. It's outside of Ottawa. Um, and I mean, I've been back since we moved away. We moved away when I was eight, when we moved to Boston. Um, and I've gone back in the summers, you know, for vacations or, or things like that. Um, but I've had this pull to go and just like explore the same way I did as a kid. And I'm trying to turn it into a research project so I can get funding to do it. But like it feels it's been feeling so important to go and just like sit there and see things and think about things. Yeah, it it it, it feels important. And I don't know why, because I haven't done it yet. I get that. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, there are magical there are magical places all around. Like, and I think. I think there's also, like, being open to it. No, like, I don't, you know, I, I have a lot of prejudice against the woo-woo, but I also am very much a, someone who likes to hold tarot cards. Um, I am a walking contradiction. It's not my fault. Um, but I think that there is something about being open to it. And I think that also what some people call magic, some people call god some people call nature some people call mother like there's so many different ways of looking at it but i think what it always comes down to is this force that is bigger than ourselves that pushes us to introspect and to calm down mm. right i think that when we and and i think we see it well in in tommy adiani's books as well it's this idea that magic is not something that is rushed you don't run through it. You don't like, it's not like I just have this like little wand and I'm going to pew pew things. Like it's, it's, you have to take the time to center yourself. You have to ground yourself. You have to find yourself first. And then in order to like go and seek power from anything else, like, and that's something that I find really interesting. It's this idea of connecting ourselves to something that's bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I feel like I got lost there. No, it makes sense to me. And also the the idea um, that magic is something that's so much bigger and more powerful that that the issue with using it is actually that you can harm yourself, which mm-hmm. is something that comes up. And that kind of happens in other fantasy worlds. I mean, of course, I'm thinking of Harry Potter now. But like, there's this element of like, oh, if you go too far, you can lose yourself like Voldemort. But there's still very much an idea that like humans are the source of magic, like magical humans mm-hmm. are the source of magic, um, instead of this idea that magic exists and is channeled through some people in some limited ways. Um, mm-hmm. There's there. It just feels more holy. Like it, Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, it feels more sacred. Which, I mean, (laughs) makes sense even just when we think about the cultural context, but um, one is, like, institutionalized very rigidly. Yeah, for sure. But also just the idea of magic kind of becoming wild and natural once again when people lose the knowledge of how to wield it. Uh And then having to relearn. Um, Well, and there is kind of a, a tiny... There's a hint of relocation in the book. Like, it comes up as a theme. I, I'm trying to do this real delicately so as not to spoil it. <laughs> but but there, the idea of relocating as an alternative mm. to war uh, comes up here and there. And I, 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 it's really just hinted at at this book. I think it's going to come uh, through much, much more in the next yeah. one. And I'm really excited to see what Adiyami does with that when... 
she has established this magic system that is so rooted in place. I'm really excited to see how that transports. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Especially thinking about... I think a lot of... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, especially thinking about how, like, magic systems and spiritual systems and religions travel in real time in the real world, and how Mm -hmm. religions pick up elements of other things. You know, I've been, like, looking a lot um, at how, like, Christianity adopted a lot of paganism, um, Mm -hmm. and it just, I'm, I'm interested to see if she works with those themes and just, like, how she does it. I'm just very excited to see what she does next. Absolutely. And I mean, like, if we, if we look at just African cultures, it's so fun to see, like, you know, a lot of African tribes and nomads, and, and you can be in different regions of the continent and hear the same language be spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, people are from very different countries. Uh, an example of that is that the Salani people are actually, uh, it's a nomad tribe from Yemen, um, and it's really particular because you'll hear the language in a line coming from like Egypt all the way across westward into Guinea, Senegal, and all the way southward into like Namibia and uh, Namibia and Uganda. So it's really interesting to see uh, to see how that actually makes sense in a in a diaspora sense. Um, and I think it's really neat. And I'm, ex- I'm, I'm just excited. Also, walking is the most African thing in the world. I think walking is just the oldest thing in the world, so everyone always talks about it. Like, the number of stories that I've heard from my mother who's just like, oh, well, I had to walk, like, 20 kilometers to school with only a hot yam in my pocket and things like that. Like, um, I think it's... It's just interesting. It really is just discovering something about my own, uh, just something that I can attach myself to in there, Mm -hmm. um, which uh, really, really, really makes me happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So friendship is at the core of this book, Uh, the trials and tribulations of friendship, Mm -hmm. we should say, as well. Um, Have you ever been through friendship breakups? Yes. Yeah, a few. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, this is hard without spoiling. Um, You know, uh, how I'm I'm only learning now how uh, to really not do friendship, but how to do friend, how to be a better friend. Mm -hmm. I think it's taken quite some time and that's normal. Um, But just kind of looking at the ways in which we handle conflict when it's with our friends versus when it's with other people, kind of very particular. Like there's something there's something that 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 really comes to that really reaches into the depths of me, I guess, with that and uh, affects me a lot because we don't we don't value friendship. Mm-hmm. Like we don't live in a society where we're to value our friendships and and place them on a not a pedestal, but like at least put them in a position of value. Um, how do you? I was uh, I was wondering how do you feel about uh, just about the place of friendship? Like you, I think I have like been in a place of really figuring out valuing friendship and prioritizing friendship. Um, 
I think growing up, especially growing up in a certain brand of Christianity, my idea of friendship was both broad and limited um, Mm -hmm. because there was kind of two levels of friendship. There was like friendship with other Christians where you had to just always say yes to everything and be nice all the time, no matter what. Um, And there was friendship with non-Christians where you just had to be trying to make them Christians. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So like uh, getting out of that and kind of being like, Hmm, what's my framework for friendship now? Like, <laughs> like, how do I find people who make me feel good? Um, and also learning not to prioritize romantic relationships, like, to the detriment of everything else, um, especially romantic relationships I didn't care about. Um, uh. <laughs> like, we're talking about high school here, right? But, like, yeah. Um, I have a friend uh, whose name is Shivani. I'm sure you've heard me talk about her. Um, But she and I have been friends since we were 11 years old. And we survived me trying to make her into a Christian. And we survived conversations where I told her that I thought she was going to hell. And uh, we've survived, like, like some some conflict and some tension. Um, And in a lot of ways, I feel like when I talk about our friendship, it almost sounds like I'm talking about, like, a, a relationship. But I think that is because people don't really talk about friendship as something that does require, like, care and attention and dedication. And, like, it's it's not a relationship. I mean, it is a relationship. It's not a romantic relationship. Um, but it's the same thing, like, when I think of the... I've, I've reconnected with a couple of high school friends recently and kind of been like, what's our friendship outside of these parameters that were kind of put on us then? Um... I am rambling. I love but that you rambled. <laughs> I think I, I, I really think like in the last few years I've been realizing I think it would just be so much better for all all human relationships if we put friendship where it's supposed to be. Like if we valued friendship for how important it is. Um, mm. One of the things I've also been realizing, so my partner, uh, we were friends for a number of years before we became a couple. Uh, and like good friends like like I think we were doing friendship in a good way and then it became a a relationship and one of the things I had to get used to in that relationship is that um, they have a lot of friends they have a lot of like established good healthy friendships and I I did not (laughs) and uh, and I was kind of like why are you always talking to these other people or like you know we would be talking about something and I'd be like well maybe you should talk to someone else and they'd be like oh yeah I've already talked to like this number of other people about it and I'd kind of be like what (laughs) um and and I really just had to learn like like what it is to be in a relationship when you also have friends um but that (laughs) That encouraged me to start prioritizing my friendships and Boom. like realizing that like we do need connections. I think there's really this myth fed to us that your romantic or life partner should satisfy all of your needs. Um, and that just puts so much pressure on one relationship. It's, it's so unfair. Mm-hmm. It's so unfair. I've also been unlearning that as well. So I find this wonderful. And I do kind of wonder, like, like there's a more of a push now with our generation towards 
alternative modes of love apart from just monogamy. Um, yep. But I do feel like there's kind of like part of that conversation needs to be like, do I want to be polyamorous or do I just want to be allowed to have a circle of intimate friends? Yes, that's a wonderful, but, but I find that that's really an important thing to think about because mm-hmm. it's very true, right? Where, I mean, you and I are, are, are from the same generation, so it's very much this like 90s view of relationships where they had to be all consuming. And if they weren't, it's because you were doing it wrong and your partner was about to lose you sort of thing, um, which is still like, if you think about it, very much of a like, leftover from like good old um boomers <laughs> um, but it really teaches us that um a lot of times like we keep talking about the importance of people uh, maintaining a self a sense of self in their relationships uh, everyone talks non-stop about the importance of uh you know your partner can't uh fulfill your every need and all that and these are super important things but when we talk about polyamory and changing relationship configurations and things like that right now, a lot of the times I, I think you're a hundred percent right. What we're actually asking is, can I have friends? Like, is it okay if, if, if I'm a social being outside of this little relationship knot? And I find that, I find that really, uh, that's a, you're kind of blowing my mind, Trevor. <laughs> well, so we talked about sex education the last time we recorded together last week, and I watched season two of sex education this week. Um, oh, and that was really, yeah. I am going to spoil season two of sex education a little bit because it's been out for a while. Um, yeah. um, the whole love triangle that gets set up, yes. that is just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and and it's handled well in the show, but this sort of, I think you have tender feelings for this person and therefore I don't want you to ever speak to them again. And that's the ultimatum I'm putting down for our relationship. And I mean, we were watching that and and I was watching with my partner and they went, that's when you break up. (laughs) I was like, yes, because if you're at this point where you feel like in order to be with someone, they have to stop speaking to someone else who's important yeah. in your life, that just means there's a breakdown in the relationship somewhere. It doesn't oh, necessarily yeah. mean you're right and they're wrong or they're right and you're wrong. It just means something's off in a big way. Something broken. Yeah. Um, big time. Oh, man. Big time. And um, dear listeners, if you have not yet launched sex education, oh. please, bless you, please take this quarantine time to go and enjoy yourself some of the best written TV ever um, also uh, stay for Jillian Anderson because hello she aged well I so I love sex education also um, the character that I felt the most called out by repeatedly is Jillian Anderson's character Jean oh yeah just like as a parent, like I have all her good and bad instincts as a parent, as a, when she has to go to the doctor to have a broken heart diagnosed. Oh. I was just like, oh shit, that's just, that's me. Like I'm having all these feelings and I don't know why I'm having all these feelings. And it's, well, has anything been going on in your life recently? Well, yes, but that's not an excuse. (laughs) I mean, yes, my life is falling apart, but I should 
still be fine. I should be functioning at maximum capacity right now. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, it's funny and it's true, though. Let's be honest. It's, yeah. it's super true. Um, I watched that show as well, and it was... Uh, sorry, I felt uh, compelled by Gillian Anderson as well. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a professional reason for it. Like, I mean, I definitely hope to be a sexologist the way that she is. Mm-hmm. Um, because, what? That's sweet. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just... <sighs> they do things so well in this show. They really just do. I they, really... They, 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 Um, it might be perfect i think that you might be right i don't have any gripes with it i get that yeah um i get that speaking of gripes sex education and children of virtue and vengeance yeah my only gripe with children of virtue and vengeance and it's not one i'm like super committed to because i i think there is enough good in this book to outweigh this i wish there were any central queer relationships Um, Because there there are plenty of secondary queer relationships. Like, it's clear that this is a world in which queer people exist. Um, And I know reading Children of Blood and Bone, I thought we were heading towards at least, like, a bisexual storyline. But the major relationships in Virtue and Vengeance are hetero relationships. And it would be nice to see some central queer relationships also. Agreed. Agreed. Can we please get some more in the next book, please? And can we make sure that the next book comes out? Sorry, the cat is licking the cheese grater. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's just hope that there's way more. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of shipping happening, right? In this this story, like, I did some shipping as well. Um, Who did? Yes? I have just felt continuously, continuously queer-baited by Amari and Zelie's friendship. Of course! And I see the value of it remaining a friendship in regards to the whole conversation we just had about friendships. But I feel like Amari has been written as a queer character. Mm -hmm. I feel like the relationship she has in Children of Blood and Bone with her servant um, read very queer. Her first, like, interactions with Azalee felt very queer. Um, And so I'm just kind of confused. Sure. Yeah. I think that... Okay, so here's, like, perhaps slightly controversial opinion. Um, I think that Children of Virtue and Vengeance suffers a little bit from um, middle child syndrome um, in the sense that there's so much to get out there, right? Because Mm -hmm. in Children of Blood and Bone, we're building a world, we're understanding, like, we're really, like... It's being built so that we we, we jump into this epic um, of of the story of, of the Magi and Orisha. So then all of a sudden, like in the second book, we end up with a lot of information. Um, but there are certain moments where I wish the plot also went a bit further. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a little bit more like... Because the third book is going to have to be, like, nothing but, like, explosions and, like, poof. There's going to have to be a lot there. And I don't know if the third is going to be the conclusion. But if it is, then we got a lot of things to figure out. 
I I agree, and I think we actually hit into this talking about the everlasting rose last week. Um, mm-hmm. That it's it's tricky when you're reading what is the second book in a series rather than a sequel, a true sequel, which um, the book we're reading next week is, which will be fun. Um, but yeah, when you have what you know is a transitional storyline. Uh, there's often just kind of a lot packed in there and a lot of things left hanging out deliberately to kind of keep the next book coming. Um, and sometimes you lose a little bit of the connection and exposition. Um, yeah. I think that's very, very common in second books. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it really is that. It's, it's The second books are a challenge. And also, like, hello, expectation. Like, Children of Blood and Bone... It was not a, a, a little success. It was not a sleeper hit. Like, this book is going to be turned into a movie. It's going to, like, there's a lot happening here. So I think that also might play into the way that we perceive it. Yeah. That the first book also blew our minds. And now we're like, okay, but, like, keep blowing our minds. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like, I mean, let's be, let's be kind. Um, I mean, Shmiadi Emi is clearly an incredibly talented writer um, and a creator of worlds, I think, is how I'm going to call her more than anything else. So I think that's going to be important to, to keep in check for the third book for myself so that I don't fall into mean judgment. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk for a minute about how gorgeous this book is. Um, Holy moly. It's it's nice to hold. I'm holding it right now and I'm just kind of gazing at it. It's like, it's beautiful. It's it's broody. Um, And what I find really interesting is that the cover art um, departs a little bit from the style of cover Mm. art of Children and Blood and Bone. And I feel like that is not, that we don't see that very often. Um, but what's cool about it is that it feels like just kind of a more refined version of the cover yeah. of the first book, which is kind of a fun progression. And I'm going to be interested to see sort of where it goes with the third one. Um, but it's also just the font is gorgeous. We've got this like metallic detailing in the text. So when you turn it, yeah. it catches the light in different ways and the illustration... Um, which is done by Sarah Jones, has, like, so much depth and emotion. Um, it's just, it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful I, art object. I completely agree with you. I would actually say that there's something that almost makes sense in um, the difference in art between Children of Blood and Bone and uh, Children of Virtue and Vengeance. It's like, on the cover of Children of, of Blood and Bone, it's much more, uh, it looks a bit more like, like a comic book. Mm. Um, it's much more surfacey, and there's something, like, I think, uh, there's something emerging, you know, like the fire on the hair, like, there's something there, whereas in on the cover of Children of Virtue and, Ven- and Vengeance, um, the image, which is of Zili, um, is, or anyways, I suppose, um, it's much more um, adult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And Zeely is now an elder in her community. Like, she is now, like, she she's arrived. She's much more 
herself as an individual, but also as a, a magical human. And um, yeah, so that's that's sort of like in listening to you speak and kind of looking at both covers, I was also like, oh, but it can also, like we can make sense out of that. And there yeah. could be something like, I, I would like to see maybe some, some, not some graying, but some yellowing hair in perhaps in the third one. Mm. Um, you know, something a bit more to signify that you know, she's gone from childhood to, to, to middle, like, emerging adultness now um, and, and becoming this, this leader in her community. But I'd like to see something of wisdom um, come up in the third book. Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. Also, there's also just a clear continuity between the two. Uh, they're not Absolutely. like totally desperate. They're very, I didn't really notice the difference in the cover art until I was really looking at them. Um, Mm -hmm. which is just, I love it when the design of a book is just clear in every element. There's so much thought put into this clearly. Um, and that is exciting, especially because I remember so clearly the era of every YA book being a black cover with a piece of fruit. (laughs) Hello, early (laughs) off. Um, I think it's also uh, important to talk about, uh, you know, the the biggest theme uh, here is, and I think it's 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 culturally uh, very apropos. Um, you know, it it it's, this book is a lot about the danger of hate. Yep. Right. And what happens when? We hate, and and we live in polarized times, quarantined in polarized times, I guess. Um, and there is something very interesting in thinking about the dangers of hate, especially when we live in bubbles created by by you know our curating our social media things and all that. So I'm just like, I think that there is something like there's it's not a weaving of current events into a story it's just finding a way to it's like an analogous way of looking at at our world i guess you know it's like oh we're the good guys uh we hate them oh no whereas the people on the other side are saying the exact same thing but what comes with that hate right Mm -hmm. it's everything Mm -hmm. is very extreme everything is very intense we go very far very fast uh, we're quick to sell one another out. We're quick to to put each other in harm's way for um, you know our cause, ourselves, or this or that. So um, yeah, I think I think this is an interesting. Like I'm pretty sure an English teacher would have some fun um, tackling the topic of hate and how it can be a double edged sword um, for these characters. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. It's great. <laughs> I think we got to wrap up there <laughs> uh, just because it's been an hour. <laughs> um, yeah, no problem. But no, that that's absolute. It's about, yeah, it's a great book. It's a good book. Yeah. And, uh, it's a good book. Buy it, read it. It'll keep you occupied for a while. And it's real, real, real good. 100%. Check it out. Don't sleep on it. Enjoy it. I know we did. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to Yeah. <laughs> If you want to leave us feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at yapodcast, and individually, I'm at Tepperbear. And I'm at caddy double underscore D. 
If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shoutout to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Setchbury, Pat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Deborah. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Fisher, or Podcast, or finding us on Spotify, um, and, it, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Um, let's be honest, share this episode with everyone. Everyone needs to start thinking about uh, how to get uh, more more Tomi Ariyami content in their week. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. A uh, little reminder that right now musicians are hit real hard because a lot of live performances are getting cut. I know the guys behind Great Bear, Andrew and Noah Van Orstrand, are getting hit pretty hard. They've been working in the Contra circuit since they were kids. This is their entire career. Um, so please consider buying their album. Uh, their music is for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com, and I'm going to drop links to a few of their other projects as well. This episode was produced by Tefra Jemian and edited by Tom Zalotnai as part of the Upford Network. You can find out all uh, you can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Bye. I'm Tom. I'm Will. And we're the hosts of Blasting Off Again, a Pokemon watch-through podcast brought to you by the Upford Network. We've taken on the monumental task of watching through every episode of Pokemon, providing in-depth analysis of everybody's favorite 90s dogfighting cartoon. We're asking the hard-hitting questions. Who's the real hero of this series? Why do some of these episodes get banned? Is Ash's treatment of his Pokemon abusive or just negligent? Is Charizard completely justified in treating Ash like the worst trainer of all time? Why don't more Pokemon have nipples? Which Pokemon would make the best professional wrestler? Is Farfetch'd your best option for Christmas dinner? Who even is that Pokemon? Are all cops bastards? Wait, I thought this was a Pokemon podcast. Uh... Anyway, tune in to Blasting Off Again on the Upward Network and wherever you find your podcasts. We're We're blasting off again! Ding! Hey, I'm Aaron Lakoff, host of Changing on the Fly, a brand new podcast on the Upgrade Network. Changing on the Fly is a podcast that dives deep into the intersections between hockey and social justice. We take on issues of sexism, racism, and homophobia on the ice. You'll hear from athletes, activists, fans, scholars, and even musicians who love hockey but want to keep the jerks out of the game. Think Colin Kaepernick or Serena Williams, with skates and less teeth. It's your perfect antidote to Don Cherry and Coach's Corner. Hey Don, what do you think of changing on the fly? Not the left-wing pinkle media, bleeding hearts guys. What are you, nuts? Anyways, you can find Changing on the Fly wherever you get your podcasts, or visit us online at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com. Yeah, the best thing you can have.